Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Sports Travel Podcast. This is Matt Traub, Managing Editor of Sports Travel, and today we're going to give you a little bit of an idea of what it was like to be at our second annual Teams Euro program at the Excel in London earlier this summer. Before we begin, first a word from our sponsor. This episode is being sponsored by the Teams Conference and Expo, the world's largest gathering of sports event organizers and the destinations and suppliers that serve the sports event industry. Teams 23 will be held in the Palm Beaches, Florida from October 2nd through the 5th, 2023. The conference will again feature the co-location of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Sports Link Program and NGB Best Practices Seminar, as well as the annual Symposium of the National Congress of State Games. For more details on everything planned at Teams, please visit teamsconference.com. And now, on to the episode. Teams Europe debuted in 2022 following the model of Teams Conference and Expo in the United States. Teams Europe unites European and North American sport organizations with destination representatives from around the world. In addition to business development through a marketplace with prearranged appointments, the conference this year featured educational sessions focused on some of the most significant events and issues in the industry, with leading experts from organizations including the NFL, the International Olympic Committee, World Rugby, International Tennis Federation, Major League Baseball, and much more. We start our recap with the opening session from Teams Europe. On the heels of Major League Baseball's return to Europe with the MLB London Series, MLB Vice President of Global Business Development Charlie Hill joined NFL UK General Manager Henry Hodgson for a session on how North American professional leagues have found new markets in Europe and beyond. The moderator is sports travel publisher Jason Gewertz. Talk a little bit about, well, one, how did things go this weekend for you? And uh, two, what are your plans uh, moving forward with that series? Sure. I mean, the weekend uh, was tremendous. We were thrilled with, with how, how it went. We had about 100, just over 110,000 people through the ballpark this weekend and about 55,000 people through other activities that we had going on around the city. So that was fabulous, and I think we were discussing beforehand that, it's, uh, of course, the main reason we do this as a league is because we're trying to reach out to new communities of people in the UK who may be familiar with baseball but not yet following it. Uh, but it's also really important that the experience that our players and, and our clubs get is, is compelling, feels authentic, uh, and, and that we have great results there. So I think um, they become advocates for us, go back to the US and say, look, actually, London's a pretty great experience. So on that front, we feel really excited, actually. Um, we learned a lot uh, the first time we came in 2019. It's, you know, it's a fabulous stadium, but it's certainly not built for baseball. So we had to work pretty hard to try and create a facility that felt like it would lend itself to an authentic experience. And anybody who's been to a ballpark will know um, the experience you have at a game is pretty unique in baseball. It's, it's something that is, you know, when we look at the journeys that our fans have been on, what, what triggered their interest in the game, the live experience is a really important part of that. It's, it's so unique. It's, it's, it's a very compelling thing, but it's hard for us to do, particularly internationally, um, because you know, there aren't ballparks in all the places that we want to go play. So London really, over the last four years, has been our first steps, really, at establishing confidence in our organization to be able to go to markets that aren't so familiar with our sport, into facilities that aren't built for baseball, but develop the practice and the confidence as an organization to do that more frequently. So we'll be back next year. Uh, we'll, through, through this current collective bargaining agreement that goes through 26, we'll be in Europe every year. And I think that it's interesting, I mean, it's, it's interesting listening to, to Henry and, and, and what the guys at the NFL have been up to. We realize this is a, a long-term commitment that's required here if we're going to actually you know, really be serious about building a basis for our sport in the UK. I think these events get galvanize the focus of our organization and our community um, around the UK as an opportunity. Uh, and this weekend, there's great momentum coming. Um, and I, I second the idea that 
the games oftentimes draw all the attention and often all the resource, which is totally you know, expected. But it's almost more important what happens this week than what yeah. happened at the weekend. Mm -hmm. You know, it's what, what you leave behind and how you build on it. And I think we're starting to create that ecology of touch points outside of, of the events. And that's really where I think we'll make the difference. But the event was fabulous. We, we're really excited to come back. Yeah, it's well, funny you say that as well. <clears throat> Sorry, Jason. No, but, but because I think one of the other issues that we often look to address is we have this, outside of the, the games internationally, we have this big moment at Super Bowl yeah. where suddenly there's a, an enormous amount of attention on us internationally. And we know that's, you know, mostly speaking, the, the first touch point that people will have um, with the NFL internationally and then suddenly the NFL goes away for <laughs> seven, eight months. Yeah. So it really is about how do you capture that moment, whether it's the international games or post a kind of tempo like yeah. the Super Bowl or the World Series to, to then keep the momentum yeah. going. And, and part of that as well is, is we're learning, I think, as I mentioned, that the, the, the idea that MLB is taking internationally seriously has, has really increasingly come into focus, but it's been a journey over the last 10, 20 years where you can kind of point to moments that we've expanded our ambitions and, and ramped things up. What we've also learned in that period is that it, it can't just be us alone that are driving all of the, the activity locally. And, and I think it's been interesting for us to recognize how important it is that we look to other organizations who are trying to do great things, whether it be on the event side or on the development side, media partners. And it's a much about, as much about galvanizing or, or, or motive or helping them really yeah. um, uh, develop our sport and, and, and being almost humble about that, that actually it's going to take more than just us to be able to really plant roots and for those things to, 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 uh, to grow, I suppose. Yeah, and uh, Henry, for some context, this upcoming season, you're going to have quite a few games and not just here in the UK. So how has that series evolved uh, you know, from a game in 2007 to where you are right now? How, how many markets are you going to be yes. in this season? So this year we'll actually be just in two markets. I say just. Um, it's, so it's five <laughs> games, more than, we've, more than we've had in Europe before. So we will have two at the at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, one at Wembley, so in London, and then two this year in Frankfurt. Uh, in previous years, uh, since 2016, we've also played games in Mexico City. Um, the Stadium Estadio Azteca is in the process of a, of a sort of refurb ahead of the World Cup that's taking place there. Um, so that's given us an opportunity this time to put a, a second game in, in Germany, in Frankfurt. But I think to your point, uh, and, and probably you know, where Charlie is, is currently, or, or the momentum is getting um, baseball to as well, is that I think the more that people see the opportunity, and you, you know, although we say that the games aren't the main thing, I think they're certainly the most tangible moment, especially for our organizations back in the US. The moment they see fans rallying around that event, the city coming to life and, and backing the sport, it, it only, and it, you know, last year we saw it in sort of hyperspeed, if you like, in Germany, where we had a great event that was really truly embraced in Munich, and already we're at two games there. So I think showing mm -hmm. what can be done and, and, um, and showing the passion for the sport that mm -hmm. exists outside of the US, the momentum starts really sort of rolling along once, uh, once people get to see that. Just to, to build on that, I mean, I, I think that the other thing that we're learning, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit as well, is the importance of consistency. Yep. But actually, uh, part of what we have to try and work with our organization on is recognizing that these things take some time, but you have to keep showing up. Uh, yeah. And it can, be, it can be exciting to think about the next, you know, where's the next city we can go to, and that'll be a fun weekend. But really, it's about trying to be disciplined and making sure that if you're going to go to a new market, or any market really, you need to make sure that you're, you're willing to keep coming back, keep building momentum. Um, and so actually, I think that 
for example, our work in Mexico, Mexico City or in, in Tokyo is a really good example where they, they enjoy the sport there, so it's a different proposition for us, a different kind of business profile for us. But um, we can't afford to let up there because that, that starts to signal something different to yeah. the market. So it's, it's about ramping up and building rather than switching focus, which is something we're learning as an organization. And on top of that, I think you also have the challenge of you've got your avid fans, we yeah. would call them, the ones who are going to show up yeah. to the, whichever market you're in. But you're probably trying to use the games to some extent to attract new fans. Totally. So how do you not just service markets yeah. slightly differently, but also make sure you're serving both of those? Yeah, I was, I was curious about that as well. Even from this weekend, having been at the baseball game, there were I mean there were a lot of Americans there who I think saw this as a destination event, mm -hmm. uh, and they were here to experience that. I, I think we probably get that to some extent. With the NFL, you've got obviously large, uh, rabid fan bases of certain teams, and if they're playing in London or Frankfurt. Uh, there's a willingness to travel and to come over here, but is that what you're going for in these events? I mean, well, how does that balance work for people that might come even from the U.S. and make this a travel experience yeah. or building a fan base in these cities that you're bringing the events to? Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's a balance. You know, you have to, we have to service our existing communities, but fundamentally they are about growing the sport, so you, you have to sort of, sort of balance that. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, the way, the way that we take this weekend as an example in 2019 as well, about 70% of the people that were in the stadium um, this weekend and, and last weekend were from the UK. But not just from London, they come from around, around the UK. This is a destination for them, you know, it's an opportunity as a, as a whether you be an avid fan or new to the sport, it, it really brings people together in, in London. Different clubs have a different sort of uh, set of traveling fans. I mean, the, the Cubs traveled in great numbers from Chicago. <laughs> yeah. uh, there were about seven or 8,000 that came from Chicago. The Yankees Red Sox traveled in even greater numbers, so about, about um, you know, a bit more than that from, from both markets. I think we expect with, so next year we're coming back with the team from Philadelphia, the Phillies, and the New York Mets. They'll both travel in great numbers, which for us is fabulous because it, it does a couple of things. Firstly, they don't just love their team, they express that, so they are a large part of what bring an atmosphere to that stadium. Um, and they also, um, they cheer at certain points, which helps the rest of the fans that aren't so familiar with what's going on to really understand and be led by them. So they really help build an atmosphere, but it, it, it's very important, I think, from the clubs that are participating, that they know that for their season ticket holders in those markets, this is a real destination moment. It's a really exciting moment in the season. Uh, servicing that group, making sure that they come with travel packages and make a weekend out of it, is a large part of what those clubs want. I mean, that's how they service their avid fans. Um, so it's finding a balance, but um, it's a big stadium, so there's plenty, plenty of room for everybody well, having, to be uh, Having grown up a New York Mets fan, I can guarantee that there will be atmosphere <laughs> yeah, year thank you. when they come. Maybe, good, good. maybe we can time Teams Europe around that game next year also. Um, and, and Henry, I imagine that's uh, to some extent similar uh, to the NFL. Yeah, I mean, I think we probably don't benefit as much uh, from the kind of natural sort of tourism moment that... that this week or you know this this month is um in terms of u.s travelers visiting the uk our games typically are in october here and, and november in germany but with that said um probably the ratio is about the same we we find that about 90 percent of our fans come from europe um and one of the indicators for the game in germany was the fact that we had a, an awful lot of people coming in to london um from you know traveling in from germany as well as yeah. to your point charlie from across the uk obviously but also from other places in europe the first day of the conference also featured a case study on the upcoming Rugby World Cups, starting with the 2023 edition that starts September 7th in France. The session featured World Rugby Executive Committee member Bob Latham, 
Women's Rugby World Cup 2025 Managing Director Sarah Massey, and John East, the UK Managing Director for Daimani, which will provide hospitality to the Rugby World Cup 2023 in France. Your moderator is myself, Matt Traub. This year, you guys, the, the schedule is very fan-friendly, with almost all the matches taking place on the weekend, so that fans from throughout Europe can come in for a short weekend. They don't have to spend weeks away from home. You know, why did World Rugby make that decision in terms of setting up the schedule that way? And was it geared toward being able to be a little bit more sensitive to the needs of fans traveling from throughout, the, throughout Europe, but also throughout the world? Yeah, I mean, it, it draws a global audience, and so that is, that's critical. And, and then obviously being in, in France, there's so many of the uh, competitors that are from, from Europe that you want to make it, you want to make it easier for them. Uh, I will note this, though, that, that, that while most of the matches are on weekends, we wanted to make it more competitive-friendly, too. Um, it used to be that all the midweek games were uh, the so-called Tier 2-level teams, and now uh, the Tier 1 teams have to play one of their matches on a, on a Wednesday or Thursday. For instance, I think France uh, is playing Uruguay on you know, a Wednesday or Thursday, uh, even as the home country. But the matches are organized so that if you're supporting... Uh, England, uh, as John said, you, you, there, there's, a, there's a, a route you can take and see all the matches. And I think even more importantly is that the knockout round matches, so there's uh, two quarterfinals in Marseille and two quarterfinals in, in, in Paris. And you don't know the, the number one and two teams in each pool get into, a, get into the quarterfinals, but you don't know whether you're finishing two or finishing one. So you go, historically, were you going to Marseille or were you going to make plans to go to Paris? Well, this time, if you're England, whether you finish one or two in your pool, you're in Marseille. Th that, that was a new feature as well. And we, we listened to the criticism of previous World Cups that, oh, you know, we can't figure out, we, we don't know which quarterfinal we're going to until a week beforehand. Well, now you do. Yeah, 48 matches, 51 days, 42 are over Friday, Saturday and Sunday, and 35 of those are on Saturday and Sunday. And again, as Bob said, that's, that's been a huge, listening to fans who've been to previous World Cups, that's been a godsend that they can plan with certainty that England, if they finish first or second, will be in Marseille that weekend. But there's also been some, um, when you look at some of the weekends on offer as well, <clears throat> like there's a weekend in Marseille, Saturday it's England, Argentina, the next day, South Africa, Scotland. Um, and as well, you look at Ireland, Scotland, for any Irish and Scots in the room, and you've not made your plans yet. Saturday, 2100 hours, <coughs> Ireland, Scotland. And it allows those fans to come in Friday night or Saturday morning, spend a day in Paris, enjoy the game, and go on with massive hangovers on Sunday morning <laughs> as well, ready for uh, next week. And the other thing that's been um, new this time round is uh, it's called Lexpert. So <coughs> you could confidently we'll choose Scotland book Scotland all the way to the final. So quarter-final, semi-final, final. But if they get knocked out in the quarter-final, we'll take that package back off you for the semi and final and give you a refund. So those can go on sale to the fans of the teams that are taking part in the, in the other rounds. So, you know, in theory, you get to the final, and if it is France versus Ireland, they're only full of French and Irish fans in there as well to give it a real atmosphere as well. Because in the past, fans have missed out. Sarah, I'd like to kind of focus even beyond 2023 20, uh, in this fall and obviously then in 24, Rugby Sevens is part of the Olympics now, but looking ahead to, to 25 in, in the UK, but also I remember 
watching the announcement for future Rugby World Cups and women's Rugby World Cups. And it was very striking when during the announcement, the emphasis and the importance that World Rugby and during that announcement was putting on the women's game and seeing it as really their a source of the market that is probably their biggest in terms of being able to grow over the next 10 to 15 years. And, you know, how has World Rugby really kind of capitalized on that increased interest? And in terms of your working with your planning for 25, what have you seen throughout the market, just not just commercially, but really in terms of interest in the women's game and in terms of not just the UK, but then obviously going on in terms of Australia and the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think in, you know, in general, we're seeing, you know, huge momentum and growth in women's sport in general, not just, you know, not, and I'll talk about, about rugby in a minute, but, you know, just in particular, you know, that, that momentum and awareness for women's sport is, you know, is incredible to see, you know, over the last couple of years. You know, I mean, you know, we're looking at off the back of the women's Euros last year, amazing, um, looking forward to this year's FIFA World Cup for the women, you know, over a million tickets sold, likely to be the biggest standalone women's event that's ever taken place. Ashes taking place here, you know, women's ashes in iconic stadiums never seen before. So I think, you know, in general, that, that momentum for women's sport is it's slowly being captured by all of the different federations and all of the different sports. In women's rugby, you know, I'd like to think that we're kind of a bit ahead of the game um, with the strategy that world rugby have and also just what we've seen over literally the last six months in women's rugby. So. The World Cup last year, obviously 21, but played in 22 in New Zealand. You know, that was breaking world records in terms of attendance, in terms of audiences. And I think, you know, when people looked to that final of New Zealand against um, England, it was probably one of the times that people were like, OK, women's rugby, this is a thing. You know, look at these women. They are amazing, incredible, powerful, fearless and competitive. And the game, you know, is attractive. It's exciting. And I think, you know, that really made people think, okay, this is, you know, this is something we want to follow, we want to be involved in. Off the back of that, the Six Nations, you know, this year, I mean, for anyone who's heard about or was at the Red Roses against France match at Twickenham, 58,000 people that were there, you know, just an amazing environment, um, loads of families, loads of men there with their kids, experiencing Twickenham in a completely different way. The, you know, the vegetarian food sold out before anything else. There was people in the cafes at Twickenham before the match. Normally the pubs would be full and the cafes empty. It be kind of the other way around when you went. And just seeing kind of the joy that people had by watching these women play, play in, um, in Twickenham in front of, you know, a huge, huge crowd. And I think, you know, World Rugby and with Rugby World Cup 25, um, they've kind of invested, they're investing a huge amount, and it's because they see women and girls as being the future, not only of women's rugby, but actually of the men's game as well, with increasing and attracting new audiences. So I guess really there's two, two ways you can look at the investment that World Rugby is putting into, into women's rugby. First of all, with their women's strategy. So um, a 10-year strategy, which goes right from, from now up until the, um, the World Cup in, in Bob's hometown or in, in the US in 2033. They're kind of focusing on a, a few really key strategic things to, to help grow the game, grow performances. And one of those is um, around women's XV. So it's, that's a competition for global, global, um, a global competition between international teams. It's never happened before. So we've had, sort of got some Six Nations and a few internationals between teams. But this is going to be a global competition that will then see 
performances grow because teams are going to be able to play against each other. So that's coming up in all, um, October this year in three different places, New Zealand, Dubai and South Africa. So qualifications are happening at the moment and they, those will be three main tournaments. Um, and also this Project Accelerate, which actually is strategically going into and working with particular unions to try and help them up their performance, up their capabilities within their organisations. So it's looking at them and saying, okay, do they need help in their strategy, in their, you know, in their competitions, in their communications and marketing, and going and really having targeted help in certain nations to grow. So it's happened so far in, um, in Spain, and there's been some work done um, in, in other countries as well just to, just to help that grow. And then the investment that we're looking at in Rugby World Cup 25. So obviously here in England, what are we going to do? What are we going to expect in 25? It's going to be we'll take it one level higher for, for women's sport in general. We'll see an increased number of teams. We'll see it going around the country, so not just focusing on the UK. And obviously, you know, ideally that at the end of that we will sell out Twickenham for, you know, which is a, a stadium of 82,000. You know, I think that would be an absolutely incredible moment that we have a full Twickenham for, for the end of Rugby World Cup 25. Our next taste of the programming at Teams Europe was a deep dive into how the International Olympic Committee maintains best practices at its Olympic Games from host city to host city. IOC Manager of Insights and Learning Trofim Anderson was in conversation with IOC member and International Tennis Federation President David Haggerty to discuss how the efforts benefit host cities and athletes alike. What, if, what is the Games Insight and Learning team and describe what your role is within the IOC? Um, so we're a team, we call ourselves Insights and Learning, specifically focused on just that, so taking all the knowledge that we have. You talk about a lot of different assets, uh, documents, guides, so taking those assets and actually transforming them into what we call insights, so actual applicable things that people, the organizers can take. And then also uh, from a learning perspective, providing learning opportunities to our stakeholders, our learners. So you could probably think of us as a uh, what you would be your usual talent management team in, in an HR department, but we're focused specifically on the organizers, um, what we call the OCOGs, uh, as you know, so the organizing host cities around the world. Uh, Paris, Milan, LA, and Brisbane right now. David, in your role as not just an IOC member, but also who's a president of an international federation, and then Trofim with the work that you do, do best practices for the Olympic Games and then the Paralympic Games, do they only work in silos such as summer hosts and winter hosts, or can a future winter host learn from a summer operation? So no, there's definitely there's definitely a lot of synergies um, between the two. You know, our, our kind of pinnacle learning, exp experiential learning program is, is what we call the observers program that we deliver during the games for the future hosts to actually come um, and go through a very specific program. It's, it's about 22 days. So we do that over summer and winter. And, and I can tell you just because we're, we're live planning for that now with Paris, it's, you know, very few things that we don't go through in the winter games for the summer. Uh, of course, there's things like you know, snow, snow removal and snow making and uh, all of that that is specific and, and, and is different. But um, even the scale, because uh, I don't know, a lot of people, um, you don't realize that the Winter Olympics are significantly less sport disciplines, sports, uh, in IFs as well, but disciplines. So even though you're reducing the scale of the games, there, there's still many similarities around um, what we call the main operations center and, as I said, operational readiness, how we deliver the games, how we do command communication at the games, all of that stuff is the same. So um, it's just a matter of, of being able to get another opportunity. For instance, in the case of LA, um, yes, they'll come to Paris, they'll learn a lot from Paris, but they'll also come to Milan in two years 
um, and, and still experience a lot of the key elements to the venue transitions and, and the, that changeover, the operations. It's actually quite a little, quite a small part that is not transferable um, between summer and winter. And I think, you know, just to add, uh, I, I think that if you look at sports in general and different events, we all learn from one another. Mm. And you know, I, I think my, my first youth Olympic game experience was in Lausanne. And uh, so, you know, seeing how that was hosted in the city, downtown, the way the community came around and really supported the event was very helpful with the, now with a different lens of looking towards the possibility of uh, Salt Lake City uh, in, in the future hosting games and what they have and how they can incorporate some of those ideas and things. And, and so as an international federation, I mean, we run many world championships, you know, wheelchair, you know, seniors, we call masters, as well as our, our events, Davis Cup, uh, Billie Jean King Cup, Hoppin Cup. And, and so what we do is uh, look at other, not just tennis, I mean, yes, we'll look at the US Open and Wimbledon, Roland Garros, Australian Open, but we have to look outside our sport. You know, sometimes we've gone to the Masters as an example to see how they do hospitality and how they set up and the athlete experience and what we can learn from there. Um, in talking to other international federation uh, presidents and sec gens and, and different people to, to get more uh, knowledge and information uh, because sometimes you're looking at maybe a host city and what was the experience of, you know, one sport and I mean, we're thinking of going there, what do we learn? So. So we can learn so much from one another. Next year in Paris, what will both of you be looking at and watching in your roles? And how, do the, how does the in-person experience help inform you in terms of not just coordinating and getting feedback that can be used in evaluating your experiences, but then taking that and moving it forward into the next year's set of Grand Slams, the next Olympic Games in two years and then four years? Um, well, uh, so I will be working. Um, I will be, as I said, our, our Games Time event is, is the Observers Program. So we have the Paris 24 Observers Program next year um, where those future organizing committees come and, and we put them through the, the three-week program. Um, it's about 90 kind of sessions over the, the 21, 22 days. So that's, that's clearly the, the focus, but in terms of where we're, we're focusing our, our learning or, or um, you know, able to do a bit more of uh, activities around is um, for sure the hospitality aspect. So um, there's a whole new program with On Location that um, will offer hospitality to fans. He was talking about you know, putting a red staunch and off and all that. So I'm interested to see what's gonna happen in the Olympics next year. There'll be a lot of firsts that we haven't seen. Um, in Olympic hospitality, um, a lot of mass events. So for instance, uh, Marathon Poitou, Marathon Poitou um, is a marathon where they're actually gonna allow people from France to come and run on the same venue, same field of play as, as the athletes will run that morning and the next morning. So there's a lot more engaging things that are happening um, at our uh, event and we'll have to of course learn from them because they're gonna also happen in the Milan and LA, I'm sure in the LA context as well, um, being a summer game. So. That's what we'll be focused on and, uh, and see what comes, yeah. And I think from, from our perspective as, as the tennis organizers, I think we'll be looking to gain new ideas that we'll be able to implement in LA in 2028. There are a lot of changes to the Olympic program and hospitality and uh, you know, one of the big challenges has always been that the Olympic Games can be quite costly for the host city. So a number of things are, are changing and 
we don't know what that's going to look like. So I think part of it is for us to, uh, you know, our team to really look around, uh, not just at our event, but uh, to make sure we see other events as well to see what good ideas or things that might might be a little bit different that they do than, than we could adapt. Um, but I think for us, again, coming back to the core athlete experience, that's where we're going to want to make sure that we've done everything we can to, to make the athletes, give them the best opportunity to compete on a level playing field and have a great experience. You know, one of the challenges we had in Tokyo was, uh, was heat. You know, we had days that we could not play uh, for hours at a time because of our heat rules and, and things. In Paris, we're hoping that's going to be uh, less of, a, uh, of an issue, but it's those sorts of things. And if it happens, how do you keep the players, um, you know, the athletes uh, in a state of mind that, that is uh, good for them and positive uh, because nobody likes to wait around if it's raining or nobody likes to wait around if, you know, I, we don't know when we're going to start because we don't know when the heat rule comes down and that sort of thing. So we'll be taking a lot of notes to help us, you know, in the future with, with L.A. Legal issues also took the forefront in a custom curated session from the top sports attorneys at Brian Cave, Leighton Passner. Attorney Steve Smith and Mark Trottier broke down the key legal differences for sports organizations operating in North America and Europe and what organizations need to be aware of before launching events in those destinations. Steve, we've, Mark, we've been talking about this uh, a bit before, uh, before we came here, the notion of these different models uh, that professional leagues have, because there are some nuances there. And if anyone either wants to do business uh, with those leagues or is doing anything remotely related to it or wants to follow it, I think it's important to chat a little bit about how these uh, how these things are structured and how they they differ and uh, even though you both work for the same firm i imagine uh, you both have different angles on a day-to-day basis that you're dealing with on, on all these things so let's just start the conversation there um sure. and and chat a little bit about what what these high level differences are in, in you know the i think one of the biggest differences is where the emphasis is between the u.s and europe in europe it's very much about the club I and mean, we have the rangers here you know it's about the club uh, in the U.S., it's not, it's really more about the league. You know, you talk about, you know, the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball and the like. And the reason why is in the U.S., most professional sports are done around a, what we call a franchise model, which says you pay the league a certain amount of money and you own a team. You're part of the league. You get exclusive territory. So you might be the only team in New York City and the like. But so much is driven by the league. Like one of the things I always, you know, laugh about, if I can... If I can borrow Mark from a, a scene, anybody watched Ted Lasso here over in, over in Europe? Okay. So in, in the finale, he's sitting down with his group. He says, okay, so Mark, if uh, we have a really good year and we finish, well, actually we have a really bad year and we finish at the bottom, then we go from the Premier League to the championship. To the championship. Okay. Now, if we do really well and we finish in the top four, we go to Champions League. the Champions League. But if we finish fourth, we still go to the even though we're not champions, you know, that's uh, you know, in the U. But the idea that a club can go and play in multiple leagues in the U.S. is completely, completely foreign. I mean, the, the Dallas Cowboys are the most marketable, most well-known uh, franchise in the, in the United States and North America, maybe the world. The idea that the Dallas Cowboys could ever play, say, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders of the Canadian Football League is just I mean, look at right. Jason's reaction. It's, it's laughing about that. As a Canadian, that. that's a dream for us. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's actually a very big, and it, and it has some practical effects. You know, so if you are going to be doing business with, you know, with a professional sports league in the United States, 
you really start with the league. Whereas, you know, Mark can talk more about this. If you're going to do business, you know, it, it, involving a club in the UK, you're going to that club and you can do that. I mean, Mark, that's exactly that's a good example. Look at, you know, obviously, Major League Baseball was in town this weekend. It wasn't about it wasn't about the Cardinals and the Clubs. It was Major League Baseball's coming to London, right? The, it was the league advertising that promoting that. The game was almost secondary at the clubs. I know people that are already getting ready to go next year. They don't know who's playing. They just want to be part of that experience. Whereas, you look at when the clubs in Europe go across to do their preseason tours. It's Arsenal. It's Rangers doing a tour. It's not the Premier League coming to coming to uh, to North America, right? So it really is a focus on the clubs. And clubs in Europe are just different than North America. They are. You know they're not necessarily money-making enterprises. They're not. They're not born out of the league. They're they're local organizations. You know, you look at look at football in in the UK, and there's however many tiers and divisions and clubs, all of which in theory could go up or down the pyramid structure, and one day, you know, do a Wrexham and kind of go up and and be in the Premier League one day, and it's just completely foreign in North America. Um, but it, it's just a completely different model, and it has implications throughout everything we do. And if you're trying to finance, so I do a lot in sports finance. If you're trying to finance a Premier League club, we have a lot of American institutions coming over saying, well, hold on, if they get relegated, the value drops by 50, 60%, and they, they have a hard time getting their head around that. And so it's the sustainability around how you deal with that pyramid structure and the up and down, that, that, that is a challenge. Yeah, and it's, and it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that was eye-opening for me when I went into you know, some league meetings was the camaraderie and the cooperation between the clubs within the league you know so I mean, and if you stop and think about it if you're about the league if you're about let's take the nfl you're about promoting the nfl you're about everybody doing well so that raises you know the tide raising all ships you know it doesn't hurt for the new york giants to give away to the los angeles rams you know we tried this in marketing and this worked really well this didn't work very well or these are some things that we're doing to promote, you know, our, our club or, you know, the games and things like that. If the Giants do well, that benefits the Rams. If the Rams do well, that benefits the Giants. So there is very much a camaraderie, which was very eye-opening to me because I, mean, I grew up as a sports fan. It's like, well, you know, of course you hate the other team because you're going to be playing them on the field. And, you know, it's all about who goes to the Super Bowl and they're in your way and you got to roll over them. It's not that. Mark, do you, is that the case here in Europe? Not quite the same here. And, and again, you, know, you look, at, look at football, look at the, the broadcast revenues coming into the Premier League, and it matters where you finish in, in the standings, right? You know, the difference between sort of first and last, there's, it's, it's a striking difference in terms of the revenues. And once you drop down to the lower leagues, you know, it, it's, it's just a different level of money. And so there is, there is competition on the field and off the field. Uh, and you look at, you know, clubs want a bigger share of that. You look at what happened with the Super League. Uh, you know, for those who don't know, a number of the big-name football clubs wanted to break away and do almost a North American-style closed league. You know, no ins or outs. I think it was 15, 10 or 15 would be kind of permanent members of that just to get a bigger share of the revenues because they are kind of global brands, if you will. So it, it, there isn't that same level of sharing. I'm speaking very generally, obviously. I'm sure there are kind of marketing and, and different initiatives between the clubs, but by and large, the, the main revenue, it really matters kind of where you are in the, in the pecking order. Yeah, whereas, you know, in the United, in the, like the whole relegation con concept, I mean, when I started to get into English football, I was like, what the heck is that? How does that work? And you know, really? You're I'm, really, I'm really glad because some of my American teams I follow would be constantly relegated and it's just a joy to not have to yeah. worry about that <laughs> yeah although the problem is 
you do have your bad franchises, which we seem to be fans of, and yeah. they end up uh, staying stay bad. You know? Yeah, but so. that's something, I mean, talking about franchise, something that, it's, I, I say it's unfathomable over here, it has happened, but imagine moving Manchester United to, uh, to London. Like, you know, yeah. it's just unheard of here. And I know MK Dons and Wimbledon, there, there's that tension there, but can you imagine moving a football franchise out of its kind of local community? Um, just unheard of over here. Whereas, you know, being a Canadian ice hockey fan, we've lost, we lost the Nordiques to you guys in Colorado. We've lost yeah. Winnipeg to Atlanta. We got them back. So these are, clubs are not tied to the community necessarily. The conference closed with a forward-looking approach to sustainability. Alex Smith, co-founder of the Sports Sustainability Group, was joined by Nora Dean Bufertala, the head of procurement from the England and Wales Cricket Board, and Kate Suttards, Director of Business Development for Sport at CTM, in a conversation about what organizations can be doing now to make their events and travel as sustainable as possible. How can sports organizations use its events to educate people about climate change and sustainability? Yeah, I, th I think there's a huge, everyone knows sports is a massive platform, it's a cultural platform, it's how people define themselves. If you ask somebody, they can tell you three things about themselves, it's generally going to involve what kind of sports they're into and what they like doing. It, it's something that, that defines us and I think that sports being such the platform that it is, it both has the responsibility and the opportunity to show the changes that can be made and provide the solutions that, that can be out there for, for its fans and for the, for the spectators and for other players. And I think that's been shown over and over again um, with, with a variety of different um, sports rights holders when they get it wrong. I think that we've seen that happening recently and that's not, not always gone brilliantly well. Um, and when they do it really, really well, I think people really engage with it as well. Yeah, yeah, uh, and I think yeah, uh, uh, Alex, Alex is, is totally right. So I think as a sport organization, we have the responsibility to show the example. Uh, one example I have in mind is uh, Virat Kohli. I don't know if you are familiar with this one. This is one of the most successful cricket players playing for India. He has an Instagram account with 250 million followers. Uh, so you can imagine the impact of all his posts he has. So he has recently joined the. Uh, the sustainability squad which raised awareness around environment and it has been extremely successful and the impact is, is massive on all the kids so right now every summer we have different program in uk and wales and they talk about this sustainability squad how can we be more sustainable and it starts at a very young age of eight to ten years old so so to have access to top players to have access to fun is a big responsibility for clubs and sport organization so we need to continue in this direction and continue to try to see if there is no other way to to promote the, the, the good example. Um, I think for us, we're, we're part of that sports supply chain. So, um, and generally speaking, travel broadly is, is the largest portion of carbon footprinting on the environmental side when we talk about sustainability. And so um, quite often we're approached to say sport has to take place in person people need to travel to get there so how do we you know how do we look at that and um, we you know we've got some solutions we want to be part of that and um, we recognize we have a role to play and we need to walk the walk as well as talk the talk <laughs> you know honestly as the conversation has increased in prominence and in regularity throughout the industry how much would though in each of your opinions how much have you seen it increase in a pri as a priority in sports, sports-related travel over the last couple of years? And what, where do you think the discussion still needs to go? 
Um, well, without doing too much of a plug, we've just done a report on, on sports and, and how um, the changing reactions of sports fans have an impact in, in the sports world. Um, and like all good reports, you go in hoping that you will find things. Um, and we worked with a, an incredible company that um, does social listening across. We looked at five years worth of Twitter, Reddit and a variety of other data about the kind of things that people were talking about it and the emotion um, and, and terminology that they were using um, around it. And actually one of the things we looked at was flying. Um, and unfortunately, we couldn't get anywhere because we, and I will apologise to everybody in the room, we over-indexed on people using the phrase, I don't give a flying f***, um, which meant that we couldn't separate it from anybody talking about flying. Um, so it's really, you know, if, if not anything else, that was quite an interesting piece that, that came out of it. Um, but what we found is that people are talking about it more. And if you look at it really, really simply, in the five years that we looked, people are absolutely talking about it more in 2023 and 2022 than they were in 2017-18. But they're not talking about the same subjects all of the time. And they don't have the, you know, subjects go cyclically up and down, which I think is interesting upon itself. And, and when we talk about sustainability, we talk about environmental sustainability, climate social, um, economic and diversity and inclusion. And what we found is that those subjects rise and fall, but we always come back to them as a very cyclical nature. And it'll be usually, um, is to do with the types of events that are on, as you can no doubt imagine the amount of people talking about human rights and LGBTQ during um, Qatar World Cup absolutely spiked, but it does fall quite quickly. We're not managing to hold the conversation with people at the moment, um, which means that if we are going to talk about it more, then sports rights and sports events and, and everyone needs to understand their sustainability across the board and to have a better understanding of it in general so that they don't become part of that cyclical nature themselves of having to react when things go wrong or the conversation picks up. Um, but they've already got everything in place and they know what they're doing and they've got their sort of language and actions and ambitions already sorted. Nordine, in your role, you know, what have you seen over the your time with the English Cricket Board in terms of how the co the conversation has changed when you're talking about venues, when you're talking about the logistics and organization and operational side of things, and how much has sustainability and your carbon footprint, all the all the terms that we now that we're starting to hear be more commonplace throughout the sport. How often is that brought up in meetings that you're in? Yeah, yeah. So to be honest, regarding cricket, the future of this sport is at stake. So it is one of the most impacted sports, but it might change. And we have. Over the last 10 years with the bushfires in Australia, a flash, flash flood in, flooding sorry, in, um, in India, but also here in England. So due to extreme severe weather, so we have seen half of our game has been cancelled between 2021 and right now. So this is a, a key topic and we need to tackle this as soon as possible. So we play, so our game depends on the weather, depends on the environment. So we're only playing during the summers. So we're just following the summers all around the world. So, so the impact of environment is, is huge and we can see this on, on every day, every day for the cricket. And then Kate, you know, a little bit of news this week. CTM recently won the Achievement and Sustainability Award at the Business Travel Sustainability Awards Europe in London which is hosted by the BTN Group. Also, as Alex mentioned earlier, the Sustainability Group's report, which was released on Monday, you can actually download the full report, not only on her website, but we have it posted on sportstravelmagazine.com. But Kate, going back to 
how travel management companies can work on terms of tracking a carbon footprint, but also arranging travel for sporting events, for fans, teams, athletes, and making it, seeing how much of the, a part of the process, the carbon footprint and climate change and sustainability is part of uh, what your processes are. Yeah, so we tend to um, work with customers through a tender process. So um, it absolutely is part, I would say, probably 25% of our tenders now, that's 25% of the tender is how do we support them on the sustainability. Um, travel is really broad, so the best way for me to describe it is to kind of put it in different buckets because when we look at the major events, that's very different to the day-to-day -day transient travel of a sports organisation to um, if you look at sort of a, a major event that moves every few weeks to a new venue. Um, and then also you've got the, the wider reach to the supporter and the ripple effect that they can have. So um, it's absolutely part of the process, you know, um, of all our customers. I think as an industry, reporting and offsetting is kind of a standard. I feel like that's the, the end point and we, we tend to look at how we can change behaviour. So yes, we are a travel service provider, um, but yes, believe it or not, we do try and encourage you not to travel as well. So um, there's lots of solutions that we can look at. So I think the easiest part, and I've spoken about this with Noor before, is on the business travel side. So just looking at your transient travel, that's probably the easiest part to tackle straight away because there's booking platforms that you can use and you can visually display to the individuals in an organisation a greener choice. So whether it's to um, encourage rail instead of flying, whether it's looking at where your hotel location is to, um, you know, where the venue that you're going to. Um, when you're comparing flights, believe it or not, uh, the granular detail of the age of an aircraft, the engine type, um, it can have a really significant effect on the carbon value and footprint of that flight. And then collectively, those sort of 20% here and there, it has, a, it has a huge impact. For the major events, um, we, we're often encouraged to look at things like active travel as well within, within an events programme. So looking at the location of teams to a venue and then how can we move them um, without you know, involving vehicles or looking at electrified vehicles. So. Um, that there's, you know, there's broad buckets of what you can uh, approach. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com at Sports Travel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Matt Traub for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.